Our scripture reading this morning is taken from uh, Romans chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, verses uh, 9 through 21. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures uh, or on uh, the screens or in your bulletin, whichever you prefer. This is God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Father, we pray uh, for your presence to uniquely be with us uh, this morning, uh, for your spirit who is with us to speak to our hearts, to reveal um, not just what your word means, but what it means practically for our lives. So, Father, we pray that as we look at your word now, for the next few minutes, we pray that we would hear your voice. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, who died in, uh, I think it was around 1996, was uh, a Catholic priest. Uh, he was a, a teacher. He was a scholar. Um, he taught at uh, a lot of presti- prestigious universities. He taught at uh, Notre Dame. Uh, he taught at Yale and Harvard. Uh, and over his teaching career, uh, he wrote many books that became uh, incredibly popular. He was well-known. He was a sought-after speaker, Uh, but after two decades of doing all this, he did something that was incredibly unexpected. Uh, He walked away from all of it and uh, moved to Ontario, Canada, and moved in with a disabilities community called uh, L'Arche. And for the rest of his life, uh, he ministered amongst uh, the disabilities community with those with incredibly severe uh, both intellectual and developmental disabilities. And when he was looking back on that experience, he said that in many ways, after his uh, very wonderful and successful career, he had become incredibly lost. And he was so lost that it took him moving to this community to really discover what his own personal self-fulfillment was, and he found it in the context not just of loving well those with developmental disabilities, but being loved by them as well. I think one of the most profound things that he wrote was that he didn't really figure out what love looked like until he lived with this community. 
Well, for 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul has been outlining for all of us uh, what we have called the mysterious absolutes of the gospel or of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul has, has eloquently spoken and written about uh, humanity's greatest problem, and that is the fact that all of us have sinned. Paul writes in one point, all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of His design and plan for our lives, and that because of our rebellion, every person, every one of us stands before God condemned, rightly waiting the judgment that we deserve. But what Paul also writes eloquently and beautifully about in the, in the book of Romans is the, the rescue that God has given for us. He talks about how Christ has come to save sinners and how at the moment of our salvation, our sin gets credited to Jesus Christ and that His righteousness and goodness is given to us in that moment. Forgiveness, redemption, restoration, adoption, all are, are these gracious gifts that God gives to those who place their faith in Him. And friends, this is the message of the gospel that Paul is talking about. We don't use that gospel word a whole lot in our culture, but in the ancient word, it was somewhat a common word. It meant good news, and, and when a herald came to any town in the ancient world declaring good news, people immediately began to listen. They knew that when that herald came proclaiming good news, that everything in their life was about to change based on the good news that they were about to hear. And so what Paul does in the, in the book of Romans is he declares that good news. But then when he gets to chapter 12, he, he, he tells us how that good news is going to change our everyday lives. You see, he moves on from the ethereal understanding of the gospel to a practical understanding of the gospel. He moves from doctrine to real life. He moves from the creed to the conduct that we are supposed to exhibit. Essentially, he's saying, if all these things are true, then this is how your lives ought to be lived. And the short answer for how all the, our lives are to live, the short answer that he outlines in, in uh, uh, chapters 12 and following is this. We are to live our lives in love. Love becomes the defining principle of our lives. Love is what it means to be a living sacrifice, to worship God. And so what Paul does is he, he defines what love looks like for us beyond the kind of hallmark sentimentality that we often think about love is and we can get trapped in. Paul shows us what, in light of the gospel, love looks like in real life. And what I'd like to do just for the next few minutes as we look at this passage is look at it in two sections. The first is what love looks like in life, and that's really verses 9 to 13. And then, which, could be, which is very important as well, what love looks like in conflict, and that's verses 14 to 21. So let's, let's first look at what love looks like in life by looking at, at verses 9 to 13. And the best thing to do is to start thinking about what Paul means by this word love. All right, 
Because in English, in our language, uh, the word love can kind of have a, a flat sort of definition. What I mean by that is this. Um, uh, every day when I leave the house and I go to work, I, I say to my wife and my kids, I, I love you guys. I'll, I'll see you later in the day. And I express my love for them. But then I could have a lunch appointment that day and I can eat a cheeseburger and I could take one bite of that cheeseburger. And what do I say? I love this cheeseburger, right? Now, am I saying that I love my wife the same that I love my cheeseburger? Well, hopefully not, right? Uh, but we use the exact same word for both of those things. But in the Greek, in the ancient world, there were lots of different nuances to this word, love. And, and Paul, in verse 9, says, let love be genuine. And the word that he uses there, later he's going to use a word called phileo for love, which means brotherly love. But in this verse, he uses the word agape. And that word agape means sacrificial love. And when he uses that word, he begins to conjure up the image of Christ's sacrificial love demonstrated for each one of us when he laid down his life on our behalf. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about uh, this, these ideas of love in his book, The Four Loves. And one of the things that he says about this agape love is that this is a love that isn't primarily about feeling. You see, often when we think about love, we think about the feelings or the emotions of love. He said, this kind of love isn't primarily about feeling, but it is a love of will. And what he means by that is, is it is God's love. And you see, when, when Christ sacrificed himself for us, certainly he had feelings of love for us, but it was really this agape love, this love of will that drove him to sacrifice himself for us. He loved sacrificially. So in effect, what Paul's saying to us is we are to imitate Christ in our love for others. We are to sacrificially love others the way that Christ has loved us. You see, when you think about it, most of our actions are dictated by the things that we love. You see, it's our loves that inform our desires, and then our desires often inform our will and our behavior. And that's why it was really important when St. Augustine said that our biggest problem is that our loves, this is how he defined sin, that our loves get disordered. And what he was saying is that the bulk of what we do is not driven by love for others, but instead the bulk of what we do has become disordered. It is driven by love for ourselves. Uh, just this past month, um, uh, National Geographic uh, came out with an article in their, in their magazine, and uh, the title of, of this article was, was Greed and the Common Good. It immediately uh, caught my attention, and uh, the article was probably boring, um, but the, the tagline, it was worth the price of admission, because the tagline uh, said this. It said, if everyone's success depended on it, would you share or be selfish? And then it said, when tested on that question, many failed. Many failed. Just think for a moment about the sheer volume of time 
that we are tempted and often do give to ourselves each day? How much time do you spend thinking about yourself each day? How much money do you spend on your own personal fulfillment? How much of our culture is oriented around things like self-help and me time and self-care? You see, the point is we are all remarkably good at loving ourselves. In fact, loving ourselves is probably some of the most natural things that we do each day. But what the gospel does is, he, is it turns this upside down. Because it tells us that Christ, in his perfection, had every right to love himself purely. But instead, he chose to love us sacrificially. He gave his life for us. And when we experience that grace, we have to realize that that grace that we receive comes with a calling. And the calling is that we are to love others the way that Jesus has loved us. Lewis wrote, to love and admire anything outside yourself is to take one step away from utter spiritual ruin. And I think the converse of that statement is true as well. To love only yourself is the quickest way to spiritual ruin. And so what Paul does here is he hits this idea of sacrificial love from a couple of different directions. Verse 9, he says, we are to love others, to love them genuinely or without hypocrisy. The image there is we're not supposed to play act love towards one another. We are to love them sacrificially. We're to love them in the real. Verse 10, we're supposed to outdo one another in showing preference and honor towards each other. Paul even uses a competitive term here. We're to compete with one another on on how much we can outdo each other in serving each other. It's a pretty wild phrase when you think about it. He says in verse 11, we cannot be slothful or lazy in this. When you think about it, it's amazing how hard we can work when it comes to loving ourselves and how lazy we can become when it comes to loving others. Again, this is not hard for us. This is where we naturally drift towards. And so all of this, Paul is saying that we all love something fervently. He's saying that sin disorders our loves, making us the center of our own universe. But what the gospel does is it reorients or recenters our love, making others the object of risky and costly love. And so the gospel calls us to repent of our own self-love, to recognize just how deeply it really goes. And friends, none of this should really come as any sort of surprise to us. Because when you think about it, when you think about your experience in your life, I'd be willing to bet that in your experience, the people you've run into, that the most self-oriented people you know are probably the people that are most given to misery. But the most joyful people that you know are probably those that have found out that giving themselves away in risky and costly ways for the sake of others is the source of joy. 
And that's what Paul's establishing here. So, so we can really get on board with this idea that we are to love other people, right? But where, where does the problem come in that? Well, the problem comes in the fact that there are other people, right? And that's why Paul goes on to talk about love in the context of conflict. And he says this, he talks about this in verses 14 to 21. Uh, Henry Nouwen, who we mentioned before, said this, every time we make the decision to love someone, we open ourselves up to great suffering because those we most love cause us not only great joy, but have the potential to cause us great pain as well. And that's why Paul, in this section, talks about people who persecute us. He speaks of those who treat us in an evil way. He speaks of those who we are in conflict with, those who have wronged us, those who have become our enemies, and he says that God calls us to love them sacrificially as well. He says that our love should be equal towards those of low esteem as to those of a high esteem. In fact, verse 16, we ought to associate with those who are lowly. And we all know how difficult that this can be. It is easy for us to love our friends. It's easy for us to love those people who affirm us and encourage us because they have become consistent with our own self-love. They've gotten on board with loving us and realizing just how great we are, and that's why it's easy for us to love them back. But the lowly, our enemies, those that that don't fit in with our own self-love, we are called to love them with just as much intensity. Those who are messy, those who require a great amount of time and energy and effort, those are the ones, Paul tells us, that we are to intentionally seek out. We're intentionally to seek them out to show them hospitality and care. John Stott said, love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them. It sings with them. It suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears, and feels solidarity with them, whatever their mood. Friends, I don't have to tell you that people are messy. All we have to do is look at our own hearts to realize that we are messy, and if we are messy, then people are as well. But the remarkable thing is this, is that the more we open ourselves up to their mess and our own, the more our hearts can be transformed. But the converse is true as well. The more we close our hearts up to them, the more miserable our lives become. Again, C.S. Lewis highlighted this. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. But if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, and it will change. It will not be broken. 
but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. You see, what that reminds us of is that this, is that love isn't just the honeymoon. Instead, love is the year after year of dedicated commitment. It is the year after year managing of the ups and downs of life, the managing of joys and the pains. And what Paul says here as well is that love in action seeks to live peaceably and in harmony with other people. Now, we all know that this doesn't happen, and that's why I appreciate Paul that leaves a little bit of concession here when he talks about this. But what he argues is this, that love pursues peace ferociously. It pursues peace ferociously. And so ultimately, the meaning of this passage is this, that love needs to be the defining principle of our relationships. And really, when you think about it, the scriptures are saturated with this idea. It is hard to find a page in the scriptures that don't emulate this idea of love as being the defining principle of those who are God's. But the question is, how do we do this? How do we pull this off? How do we manage this kind of love? And one of the easy things to do is to walk away from sections of Scripture like this or to even walk away from Scriptures like this or sermons like this and say, I'm just going to go out today and I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to try harder to love people well and sacrificially. But to come to that inclusion is to, to, to try and only deal with our lives at the level of our behavior and not necessarily at the level of our hearts or our desires. Because if we are people who are given to self-love, then no amount of trying will change our hearts in a lasting way. Instead, what we desperately need is for God to come and to rewire our hearts. We need God to enter in and to break our self-love, and instead to root it in sacrificial love. We need to to die to our own self-love, and this is what God does for us in the power and the message of the gospel. Because what the gospel reminds us is that we were the enemies. We were the persecutors. We were the unjust. We were the lowly, and yet the love of God found us in the midst of it. And so, friends, let the gospel of Jesus Christ rewire your hearts. Let it break you of your self-love, and as you look to Christ, fill you with love for others. Let the gospel rewrite your loves Let it rewrite your desires, and then you will find that it will eventually affect your behavior in everyday life. It won't matter if love requires something risky. It won't matter if love requires something costly. It won't even matter if it opens you up to abuse or hurt because the gospel, because God has rewritten your heart. Let me close with these words that sum it up beautifully in John chapter 4. 
In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray.